Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kristen Turner, and today, in a first for me, I'm interviewing an author for a second time. My guest is Doug Shadle, whose first book, Orchestrating the Nation, tells the story of the 19th century American symphonic tradition. He's with me now to talk about his latest book, Antonin Dvorak's New World Symphony, which Oxford University Press released early in 2021 as part of the Keynote series. Most music students have been taught that the New World Symphony was the first piece of classical music written in an American national style, which Dvorak invented when he utilized influences from black music in the second movement. The impression most textbooks leave is that this innovation was instantly approved by composers and critics alike, and that American, uh, American classical music was born through Dvorak's intervention. Like most historical myths, this one only has a small kernel of truth surrounded by years of misunderstandings and erasures. Like a musical mythbuster, Shadel sets the stage for Dvorak's time in the United States, tells the story of the symphony's genesis and early critical reception, and most importantly, delves deeply into the complex interactions between race and music that have come to define the symphony and American musical identity. Welcome, Doug. It's great to have you again. Yeah, thanks. I'm really glad to be here and talk with you about this new project. Well, it's a great book. And um, this keynote series really um, is defined by it's a um, the series is that one book is about one piece of music. So it's a it's a series of small books. And um, so this one, of course, is about the New World Symphony. So how did you come to this project? Yeah, great question. So you're exactly right that the keynote series is about a single piece of music. And the idea behind it is taking a look at canonical pieces of music, especially music that has played a significant role uh, for listeners culturally uh, for a long time, or has played a defining role in certain aspects of of the broader culture. And so uh, authors in the series take these pieces as a jumping off point for rethinking them. Uh, For instance, asking what is it that we don't know about these canonical pieces or how can we reshape how we hear these pieces? And uh, I came to the New World Symphony actually through my first book, Orchestrating the Nation, where uh, one of the later chapters talks about Dvorak's residency in the United States between 1892 and 1895 and situates him within the other types of symphonic writing that were happening here uh, before and during that time period. And I left a lot of research on the cutting room floor, so to speak, so much that I thought this, this entire chapter really needs to be its own book because there are so many issues related to race in particular that, that didn't quite fit into the narrative of the first book, but were significant enough, in my opinion, that really needed to be told and explained in an easily digestible way. And so I thought the keynote series was a really good fit for expanding an idea that was chapter length into something that was a a length for a short book. Um, So why don't you set the stage for us? Dvorak comes to America, I think, in 1891. Is that, so I'm remembering that, or is it 93? 92, 92. 92. All right, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm around it. That's easy, <laughs> yeah, easy to remember because it was 400 years after Columbus, and he they had this big celebration in October on Columbus Day, and, and this, this gentleman gave a big speech at Carnegie Hall comparing the two. Oh, you're right. I should have remembered that. Anyway, so 1892. So he comes to America in 1892. What does Dvorak find um, when he arrives in America in, in terms of our musical culture? Yeah, so... so clearly a lot going on. I mean, there's everything from musical theater to street musicians. Um, Wind band tradition is really, really booming at this time. Um, All sorts of different opera traditions are happening, opera in different languages, including English. 
um, kind of small scale, large scale music at beer halls. And then if we want to think about classical music in the way we think of it in the 21st century, there were two major orchestras in New York City. One, the New York Philharmonic is still in existence. The other was called the Symphony Society of New York. And it was funded by Andrew Carnegie, the same person who funded Carnegie Hall. And it was a rival to the Philharmonic. And so there were these two rival orchestras that were competing for space in, in, in kind of cachet. Uh, there was also an orchestra called the Brooklyn Philharmonic, which the, the two cities were not really one yet. And so they weren't exactly um, part of the same ecosystem, the two, the two I mentioned before being in Manhattan and one being in Brooklyn. Um, but, but a lot of the personnel was similar in that the conductor, uh, Anton Zeidel, conducted the Metropolitan Opera for a while, conducted the New York Philharmonic for a while, conducted uh, his own orchestra in Brooklyn for a while. Um, and so it was a really vibrant music scene, even, even within the subset of classical music culture, uh, but of course, with with New York City at the time being uh, multi-ethnic, um, just as it is today, very rich in all kinds of musical traditions. So he found a very vibrant multicultural city when he arrived. It probably uh, probably unlike anything that he would have encountered in Central Europe, uh, with Prague and Vienna being the two major cities that he was affiliated with. Uh, there was certainly a kind of multi-ethnicity in both of those cities but just, just not of the sort that, that he would have encountered in New York City. And tell us how he ended up moving from Prague to America. What brought him to the United States? Sure. So he was hired by this really interesting philanthropist named Jeanette Thurber uh, to become the music director, really the executive director of a conservatory that she had established a few years earlier in 1885. And Thurber, I say she was interesting because she was really into a lot of different philanthropic projects. Um, I, I hesitate to say that she was, uh, she was spending her husband's money, but he was a, a grocery wholesaler. He was a, a business person who developed this idea of wholesaling and then redistributing to retail markets and serving as kind of a middleman in the grocery business. And she was a music lover trained at the Paris Conservatoire uh, as a youth. And so she had a deep love of classical music, especially opera. And throughout much of her earlier career, including into the 1880s, she was really intent on establishing a national federally funded opera company. And in the mid 1880s, it occurred to her that she could do what in business is called vertical integration. And of course, this is the time when other business magnates like Andrew Carnegie and, and John Rockefeller are also thinking about vertical integration. She says, well, what if I develop a conservatory that would feed directly into this opera company so that the students create this, pi this direct pipeline to the professional troupe so that she's kind of in charge of both entities in the way that Rockefeller uh, wanted to be in charge of oil and uh, railroads at the same time so that he could control supply on a number of different levels. And so anyway, she, she comes, I think it's a really brilliant idea to have the conservatory and the opera company working together. Now, other scholars like Catherine Preston have shown that the opera company became just this total disaster. This is between 1885 and 1887 where the conductor, Theodore Thomas, wanted to spend just oodles and oodles of cash on scenery and singers, uh, but especially the orchestra. And so it just got way too expensive. And it also didn't have much of a national character to it. There was a lot of criticism that this opera company wasn't very patriotic because it was performing a lot of European music. And so it dissolved relatively quickly in 1887. But the conservatory stuck around because it was uh, competing against uh, other major conservatories like the New England Conservatory, the Conservatory in Cincinnati, uh, the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. And it, it was a major conservatory nationally 
and really one of the best in New York City. There were some kind of cottage industry conservatories in New York City as well. Uh, but it quickly became one of the best in the country through her development of a faculty. And between this period, 1887 to 1891, she decided that really what it lacked was a significant visionary leader. And so she lighted upon this idea of hiring a famous person from Europe to be like the, the lodestar for the organization and really take it to the internationally competitive level. And so that's why Dvorak was here, and, and we really owe it to Thurber's imagination and kind of pluckiness as an entrepreneur that, that any of this happened in the first place. Well, she is a fascinating character, and um, I think you did a great job of explaining how she's important in this story, but why would she immediately go to Europe for the directorship. In fact, I don't think she ever hired anyone who wasn't from Europe, even if the rest of them weren't as famous as Dvorak. So why not hire an American for that visionary visionary leader? Yeah, this is this is really an unsolved mystery. And I think I think my gut says that it was really that she felt like an international imprimatur is what it would take for this conservatory to compete on the international level. The idea is that, um, well, I should say one of her motivating factors is that gobs of students, I mean, hundreds a year, were leaving the United States to get their conservatory training in Europe uh, at the conservatories in Leipzig and elsewhere. And so she felt like she needed to steal some of that cachet from Europe and bring it to the United States to stem the tide of people leaving. And again, it's, if you think about it from a business perspective, it's that these individuals were seeking whatever kind of cultural validation a European education would provide. Because, I mean, music theory training, for instance, was the same in Europe as it was among local teachers in Chicago or New York or wherever. I mean, the, the tonal the ways of teaching tonal music theory are the same. They're, in some cases, they're even using the same books, just translated into English in the United States. But there was a real, uh, I mean, orchestrating the nation gets into this quite a bit, as does uh, work by a lot of other scholars, where musicians, if they had some kind of European background, were accepted more easily as professionals in the United States. And so she was hoping to turn that around by bringing some of Europe over here to naturalize, if you will, uh, that imprimatur. So once Dvorak gets here, he um, starts thinking about writing music that's in some kind of American national style. Was he doing that because, you know, that's what you do? Or was he getting some outside pressure to sort of um, link his style to American music in some way? Yeah, so this is this is part of the story that has become the biggest myth, as you mentioned in the introduction. Uh, as you put it, and and as other people have put it, the the prevailing notion is that he got here and was so inspired by what he heard that he just transplanted his old compositional approach to this new place and didn't really change anything. It's just that he was absorbing different influences, and then off he went. And then the second half of that story is that it was so inspirational to him and he did so well with it, that the influence just spilled over into other people. Well, that's, it's really the complete inverse of what happened. Uh, so throughout the first couple or three chapters in the book, I go into Dvorak's reception in the United States prior to his arrival. And he had a really split reception among audiences and critics. So he, he was popular in the sense that conductors programmed his music often, but he was not the, certainly not the most popular uh, orchestral music composer, was not the most beloved orchestral music composer. And one of the reasons why he, he wasn't sort of at the top of anybody's list at this time is because his music was really uh, divisive. Uh, some people thought that his music was more representative of an old-style, conservative, compositional trend that we might also associate with someone like Brahms. 
a, the kind of Mendelssohn-Schumann-Brahms stream of composition. Other critics heard his music as being more in line with progressive composers like Richard Wagner. And depending on how the critic heard it and their point of view, this was either a good thing or a bad thing. So the conservative critics, if they heard conservative style, they liked it. If they were conservative, but they heard Wagnerian style, they didn't like it. Alternately, the Wagnerians, if they heard something Wagnerian in it, they loved it. If they didn't, then they didn't like the music. And so he's, he occupied this, I, I, I don't know what the best word for it, kind of a liminal space in the, imagine, the American imagination in the 1880s as, as kind of an enigmatic figure because no one could quite put their finger on exactly what his style was. Uh, he was a real um, kind of chameleon, if you were to ask people familiar uh, with his music. Now, at the same time, some of the pieces that were performed were things like his Slavonic dances and the Slavonic rhapsodies which audiences heard as projecting a kind of Eastern European identity, whether it was specifically Czech or not, um, most critics didn't get into. They kind of assumed that it was, but they, they were not familiar enough with the ins and outs of the various uh, ethnicities of, of dance music, for instance, uh, that he might have been pulling from. But this, this cluster of pieces took on its own sort of identity as kind of a showpiece, as something that was um, aesthetically pleasing, but not serious music. And so when he gets here, people don't really know what to think of him. The the, the opinion is divided. Um, And that's, of course, like irrespective of what he was thinking. But one thing that I found, and that another scholar um, in Europe is found named David Beveridge is this interesting interview from roughly October 1891 by an American reporter. And this American reporter asked Dvorak, says, hey, do you ever see American opera taking root in the United States, like a truly national opera? And at this late date in Dvorak's career, he says something along the lines of, well, you can have an American libretto, you can have a story on an American theme, but an American national music, never. He says, if Americans want to develop in music, they will have to follow German masters like every other European country has. And so when he came here in 1892, he did not believe strongly in the development of what we might think of as a vernacular inflected classical style, that what he was doing was was something else. It was not that. Well, meanwhile, a few composers, a small minority of white composers in the United States had already begun to experiment with this notion of integrating uh, African-American vernacular music of various kinds into classical idioms, particularly into pieces like uh, suites or overtures, that sort of thing, these kind of generically um, less formulaic pieces. And after Dvorak arrived here, he encountered some of those pieces and some of those composers because they were sort of, they were trying to get their ideas accepted uh, because most Americans were, were distinctly opposed to this procedure. And so they kind of came to Dvorak or other critics who knew of their music came to Dvorak and said like, hey, what do you think of this? Well, at the same time, this is like strand number four that we have going on here. There's a, an African-American student at the conservatory named Harry Burley. And Harry Burley uh, was part of the living oral tradition of the performance of African-American vernacular music, as well as someone who had been involved with the uh, development of the concert spiritual as a genre Um, which developed among the Fist Jubilee singers in the 1870s. So he was partly uh, in sync with that. And so he sang these songs for Dvorak directly. And so about six to seven months into Dvorak's residency, he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. There's all this interesting music here. Some of these composers have already started to experiment with it. He's like, this seems like a really good idea. Like, I really like what you all are doing. 
And so he then comes out and makes this big pronouncement uh, in May of 1893, just a few months after he gets here, saying that, you know what, world? I think the future of classical music in this country rests on the integration of African-American vernacular music or folk music, as he called it, uh, into classical idioms. And so it, it wasn't his idea at all. He was simply amplifying an idea that had already taken shape elsewhere and was already being experimented with elsewhere and then gave it, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of uh, foreign imprimatur. And this was very surprising to practically everybody. Uh, and we can maybe talk about that in a minute, but that's, that answers your original question of uh, what, what actually happened with Dvorak just before and after he got here is that he wasn't at all thinking about developing an American national style. But then once he encountered the discourse that was happening, in addition to the music, he thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe a national style is possible after all. So that was a real transformation in his thinking rather than he comes here and transforms everyone else. So in that story, you um, talk about the critics that he encountered and um, I was, and um, also the orchestras that were, you know, you, you've talked about the orchestras and, and some of the um, conductors and so forth, musicians that he encountered. And I was really interested to see you had a um, chart in the book that was all the pieces that were orchestral pieces that premiered in um in the U.S. and sort of around the time that the New World Symphony did as sort of talking about kind of what was this competition, so to speak, like what other music were people hearing? And it was, I think it was at least 20 different composers. It was a ton of different music. Many, like Brahms had many pieces that were performed in that period, but only two conductors. It was either Theodore Thomas or Walter Damrosch. And that made me think about, you know, how did the taste of these two conductors who were clearly really important if they're the ones who are premiering all of this work, you know, how did their musical taste really shape the, the music, you know, the trajectory of American music um, that, you know, as Dvorak found it when he got there and also, you know, the kind of world that he was having to live in once he was living in New York. Yeah, no, that's an incredible question, and, and it would really be hard to overstate their significance for developing a canonical repertoire. Um, Thomas and Damrosh both toured all over the country, and uh, one of the fun things in the book was when I would stumble across a review of, say, Damrosh's Symphony Society at a performance in Louisville um, of a piece that they had premiered in New York just a few weeks earlier, and you get just the different reactions from critics hearing the same pieces in different cities. And uh, it's also important to note that the, the Boston Symphony Orchestra was also uh, present um, and very active. It didn't tour quite as much as these other orchestras. So I would say it had more of a secondary or peripheral impact on this consolidation. But um, th those conductors were also working with the same uh, infrastructure of acquiring scores and manuscripts and this sort of thing. Uh, but to come back to the notion of taste, yeah, like Thomas was uh, an ardent Wagnerian, and as was Damrosh. And so they were both um, performing a lot of music that I would consider in the more progressive compositional vein, a lot of symphonic poems, uh, things by Sanson, for instance, um, a lot of pieces by Eastern European composers um, because uh, ethnically inflected music, if we want to call it that, was, was starting to become popular. And as I point out, was really associated with the Wagnerian stream of composition. Like one could not be a conservative symphonist and inflect your music with uh, ethnic trappings. Um, that's not how critics saw that. They saw integrating one's ethnicity as more of a Wagnerian gesture. Um, and so, yeah, like their taste is really defined the programming. 
But at the same time, there's quite a bit of evidence, and I get into this in Orchestrating the Nation as well, there's quite a bit of evidence that they often program things against the wishes of their audiences, so they, that audiences were not always pleased by <laughs> the repertoire, uh, but they didn't have much choice. I mean, you know, it, it, again, it would be hard to overstate kind of the level of monopoly that these individuals had over orchestral music, um, because not every city had a standing orchestra that they could go to on the weekends uh, a few times a year. Um, this is a time when uh, even, even Chicago did not have a full orchestra that was, that was relatively permanent until 1891. Uh, and, and it was Theodore Thomas who took over that orchestra uh, when it started. And so again, like his, his taste defined so much of the landscape. Um, the Cincinnati May Festival too, which happened uh, every other summer, uh, Theodore Thomas directed that. So it's, it's like every city has its little Thomas footprint and in many cases a Damrosh footprint as well, although his was a bit less uh, significant. He was a bit younger uh, than Thomas and, and came on the scene quite a bit later. His father, Leopold, um, was kind of a, a New Yorker who was an immigrant, but was a, a New Yorker at heart and didn't do as much touring as, as Walter eventually did. So, yeah, I mean, their, their taste really shaped the performance repertoire and the eventual consolidation of the canon. And if I could add just one more thing on this topic, it's that it, I, I'm struck when I see that chart of how many composers really aren't programmed anymore. Um, Frederick, uh, C-O-W-E-N, Cohen, uh, for instance, was, I call, I call him Dvorak's chief symphonic rival because they were always appearing sort of one month after the other um, in, in the years leading up to Dvorak's arrival. And, you know, who knows Cohen's music, but we know Dvorak's music. And I've got a playlist on the the book website that allows people to hear all of these pieces in uh, usually pretty good recordings. Uh, some some European orchestras have taken up this repertoire out of historical interest, and you can hear it all on the website. Well, in addition to the taste of these two really important conductors, you also have the influence of the press. You really go into the different critical reactions. You were talking about sort of the progressive wing of the critics and the more conservative critics, but also the press coverage itself. I think you, you really um, show how important that was to the reception of the piece itself. And I'm particularly thinking of the Herald and how they sort of, you know, it seems to me they were creating a, um, they wanted to just whip up controversy. You know, they were trying to find a way to make Dvorak and Dvorak's ideas, um, uh, you know, sell papers, basically. So can you talk a little bit about how the sort of press environment, the critical environment, and particularly the Herald, um, kind of set the stage for making the New World Symphony a big deal in, and, and to bring attention to that particular piece as opposed to maybe other symphonic works that were doing something similar to what Dvorak was thinking about. Yeah, totally, totally. And that's a great way of putting it. I mean, the New York Herald, it, it got its reputation through what's called yellow journalism, where it's creating this sensational stuff. I mean, it's, it's, I believe it's one of the papers that started the Spanish-American War uh, at the end of the century. I mean, it, it, this is what they wanted to do. And I mean, it's really no different from uh, media today, really, with the spread of social media. I mean, there's really a lot of um, comparison about virality um, with sensational stories. And I think this is a, an early case study in virality and, and how the, uh, a media conglomerate uh, constructed its own virality. And so what happened is, uh, and Michael Beckerman it was really was really formative of my thinking here as professor at NYU and Dvorak scholar. But but Beckerman, I have to say, for all the good work that he did, um, didn't didn't has not captured the scope of this. I mean, um, using digital resources really helps because you can type in keywords now for optical character recognition and find. I mean, it's in tiny newspapers around the country were reporting on this stuff. I mean, it was it was truly everywhere. And um, anyway, to, to roll back a little bit, Dvorak was probably told 
that he was just doing an interview on uh, just sort of a, a biographical interview or, hey, what do you think about this? And it was going to be very understated, just a, a profile, a character profile, if you will. But the journalist who Beckerman thinks is behind this, and I agree with him, is a man named James Creelman. And Creelman um, did this interview with Dvorak, but then the way that he framed it was really uh, rather contra- controversial. So in the first place, he frames, he tries to frame Dvorak within this divide between uh, aesthetically conservative and aesthetically progressive people. He says that um, basically that Dvorak is, is the tip of the spear for uh, the Wagnerian camp and that uh, conservative musicians will, will never like Dvorak. Uh, so that would have inflamed sort of the the musical insiders. Now, on the back end of the interview, this is the interview where Dvorak says that he thinks African-American music should become the basis of a national style. On the back end of the interview, Creelman says, uh, in addition, that, that he perceives Dvorak's comments as uh, really humanizing Black Americans, he compares it to uh, the old Dutch master painters who created these um, you know, these character scenes of like uh, elderly elderly folks and sort of paint them in this really sympathetic light. And so he compares Dvorak to those painters, and I found that to be in context a really provocative comparison because it means that uh, within the context of Jim Crow America, Creelman is saying that Dvorak is. Uh, very supportive of African-American people, in addition to African-American music as an abstract concept. And so that's where things really light one fire. Um, The other aspect of this story that's kind of fascinating that, that I think supports my argument that it was what was more controversial was Dvorak's, was Creelman's presentation of Dvorak's view of people is that the conservatory also announced that it was admitting black students free of charge. And so that's kind of proof in the pudding that we can now read the conservatory as this very politically progressive institution with Dvorak at the helm, and that now they're deeply involved in these issues of civil rights, say. Okay, and so that's like guaranteed to anger all of the, the the racist American societies surrounding uh, this issue. So even though this interview was not about politics at all, Creelman framed it in terms of musical politics, meaning this aesthetic divide, and then racial politics in a in a kind of subdued way. Well, immediately after this is released. Uh, the wire service of the Herald is connected to Paris and reporters in Paris um, have already been dispatched to like Berlin and Vienna and maybe a couple of other places in Europe. And they come into the the homes or offices of all of these uh, famous musicians like the violinist Josef Joachim, who I want to say was directing a conservatory in Berlin. Uh, they talked to the, the composer Anton Bruckner, and they're asking all of these people, Dvorak has said this, what do you think? And then they stick the microphone in his face, like this is what you can imagine uh, in the 21st century. They stick the microphone in his face, what do you think about this? So they're getting hot takes from all of these composers, and it's a, it's a really pretty broad spectrum of responses that they get over a matter of, of three or four days. Uh, some people are, are thinking like, ooh, it's a really interesting idea. And, and really the most interesting case to me is Anton Rubinstein, who had heard some of the music by one of these American composers uh, kind of dabbling in this style. He had heard it at a concert, uh, even before Dvorak came to the United States, he heard it at a concert in Dresden where this music was performed. And so Rubinstein was kind of reminded like, oh yeah, I've liked this idea for about a year now. Like let's, you know, let's see where this goes. And then some other people uh, take the the total reverse view. I mean, Bruckner is one in particular, um, but they say things like, gosh, very racist things like, gosh, I can't believe that Dvorak would promote music by people who have learned from an oral tradition. Like that's just 
is clearly second class music. Uh, that's what they were saying. And so that that was pulling from uh, racial stereotypes at the time. And so you get this broad spectrum of people who are, are like very interested and want to see where it goes versus those who are saying, like, you know, why would Dvorak waste his time? Well, during that period of days, the Herald starts to collect these responses. And on May 28th, a week after the first uh, article comes out, it was on May 21st, on May 28th, they then publish all of these things back in the United States. And so they've like immediately gathered all of these views. And so now we have all these people in uh, Europe weighing in. Well, there was another newspaper, the Boston Herald, and I, I still haven't figured out if it was part of the same ownership structure, um, but it had done the same thing with local musicians in Boston. And so it talks to all these Bostonian composers and musicians on May 28th, all of these opinions come out. And so now there's, there's this debate afoot about what Dvorak said. Did he mean what he said? Is it, is it true? Is it not true? What are the implications of this? Blah, 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 blah. Well, then music magazines, which didn't come out on a daily basis, they were usually weekly, uh, every two weeks or every month. Well, of course, they want to go to their sources and figure out what their sources have to say. Their editors start sending out editorials. But uh, so, so things just start to, to build and build and snowball and snowball over several weeks. Well, what I think is even more fascinating is that the Herald developed uh, news briefs and small town newspapers would use the news brief wire service and would just reprint these news briefs. And so they would publish basically the digest version of this story or sort of any new uh, commentary. They would republish this new commentary. And once in a while, you'll get like a letter to the editor from a local person commenting on the news brief without having all the information. And so it, it's just so cool to see to take a 10,000 foot view and see uh, this, this distribution uh, strategy from international to national to local and how this, uh, like this Dvorak issue takes off. And, and as I show in the book, it continues all the way down to the premiere of the New World Symphony in December of 1893. So from May 21st to December 16th, it, it never leaves the sort of the national conversation in the media, um, just, just like a viral story can, can, can persist uh, in social media today. Um, well, uh, I, I kind of want to move on to another topic, but I'll just say briefly that after the symphony premieres, this, the same thing kind of happens again, but in a shorter form. I mean, I think it finally, it, it, it sort of dies a natural death. It has a kind of life cycle of virality. Um, but when the symphony premieres again, it's like some of these passions are re-inflamed and some, some people who didn't participate in the first one weigh in on the second one, some significant people, I, I should say, uh, weigh in in the second second round. And so it really um, kind of rounds out the portrait of, of views that, that one would have encountered back then. So I love that description of it. And it, I, I can't help but think that that sort of six months of press is one reason why you know, it's Dvorak symphony that has come to the fore in this larger myth about American musical culture, because it's, it, it created this idea that this particular piece of this particular composer is more important than all the others. And that kind of sticks in your head, you know, sticks in the head of them, you know, subsequent people. So I'm so glad that when you, you when you really go through and figure that out, it was, it was a very cool part of the book. Um, one of the other things that struck me, however, is when we, if we just, go down to the actual piece itself. Um, I think I certainly was taught and, um, you know, all the textbooks always say, well, um, New, Mark's New World Symphony has influences from black music and you can really hear it in the big English horn solo in the second movement, which sounds like a spiritual. Some people even will say it is a spiritual because um, words were later set to it. It's sort of a hymn-like piece called Steal Away. So, um, uh, you know, and this is where the blackness, you can hear the blackness is particularly in the second movement. And yet, Crabiel the first um, critic to write, I think it was Craybill that wrote this very long, right. very detailed um, uh, piece about it. 
He says, oh, no, that's the Indian influences. Of course, he called it Indian, right? That's that's the song of Hiawatha. That's 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 the movement that's all about the Great Plains and, you know, all this kind of pastoral imagery related to Native Americans. And there are other pieces where there's a similar confusion about is this Native American influence or is this Black influence? There's a piece called Song of Hiawatha that I guess Craybill heard African elements in, but Dvorak said, no, this is about Native Americans. So can you talk about, like, how, it can't be both. Like, you know, I mean, if if this has any meaning, like if there's really a true musical influence from a particular ethnic source, you shouldn't have that kind of confusion. And yet it's, that's, you know, that's a pretty big um, difference in, in interpretation. So can you talk about like, what does that tell you about the so-called black influence in this piece? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is, this is really, it's really difficult to wrap one's mind around, I think, because, um, and it's done a lot of damage in the popular imagination because like Crabiel was working within an intellectual framework of what we might think of as, as scientific philology, philology with a PH, um, as if you can reduce a repertoire, say a book, a collection of African-American music, of which there were several by this time, and Crabiel even released his own quite a few years later, I want to say around 1912. Um, he, he was very much into this notion of collecting folk music and studying it scientifically and philologically to reduce it down to its uh, musical essence, like what musical properties are shared across this repertoire. Now that's coming at it from a scientific lens. Now Dvorak was coming at it really through a more um, like a spiritual lens where he heard this music, he would play through it on the piano, he would hear Burley play it and sing it. And he was just trying to, as he described it, imbibe the essence of this because he didn't want to quote anything in the piece. And so on the one hand, we have someone like Crabiel who's really trying to drill down into the specific notes and figure out, well, what is it that makes this Native American or what is it that makes this African American, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Dvorak is, is really not so interested in that. Like he, he is thinking about the broad strokes of, of the portrait, if you will. And so Crabiel, although Dvorak supported Crabiel's interpretation of the piece in this article and even used excerpts from it as officially sanctioned program notes, like when it premieres in London a couple of years later, uh, in fact, um, Crabiel's views in Dvorak's didn't really mesh because Dvorak states in two or three different places that the difference between African-American and Native American really didn't mean much to him. Um, That from his kind of outsider perspective, it was all just kind of pentatonic and rhythmically interesting. And so he's working with these basic tools um, that are, are really kind of indistinct, particularly when you're not quoting something. And so for him, it was really about the emanation of an aura, uh, the, the, the shadows of penumbras, if you will, <laughs> of, of African-American music uh, that he's trying to convey. And Crabiel and other critics, particularly in the United States, I think this is a, 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 almost a uniquely American phenomenon, really wanted to know what it was because unlike for Dvorak, politically, it really mattered to them. Um, and this is a thread that becomes increasingly urgent and present over the course of the book, is that for the piece to be called definitively influenced by African-American music gave it a more explosive political character than it might otherwise have. And so like people really wanted answers. And if we want to think about the broader political landscape, it's the same kind of eugenics level thinking of the one drop rule. Like if there's one drop of African ancestry, uh, according to these eugenicists, then the person is black. And so this kind of scientific exploration of the thing was significant. Now, Crabiel was taking the the sort of anti-eugenicist approach that, you know, actually 
it, there's this mixture of styles in here that Dvorak has very subtly woven in and out. And of course, from 21st century perspective, like I can't hear the things that Crabiel mentions as African-American as African-American necessarily. Um, but he was, he was just coming at it from a different mindset. And so th that question of, of like what, where in the music is quote unquote blackness or quote unquote indigeneity, et cetera, et cetera, is, is for me the wrong question to be asking. Like that's a very late 19th century question to be asking um, because they're, they're, they, they truly believed that one could scientifically reduce the national essence of a music to certain very specific stylistic elements. And, you know, for me, like, what, what's the point? Like, it, it, because it's, and this, this becomes, this actually became a, a bit of a flashpoint of debate where some critics would say, oh, well, this really sounded Celtic, or, oh, this really sounded Scandinavian, or, oh, th this really sounded blah, 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 really in an effort to say that it wasn't Black. But um, the fact that all of these folk styles share some properties is really, it, it really illustrates um, you know, the, 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 the meaninglessness of trying to define it so specifically. So given the fact that there's clearly a political reason to define or not define something as black music in this, in, in that period and, and later, certainly, um, how did black musicians feel about this whole debate you know, how did black critics feel about Dvorak and his piece? Can you talk a little bit about how the sort of black community's response to, to the debate and to the piece itself? Yeah, sure. So this, this I hope, is, is one of my own main original contributions uh, to the discourse because um, some excerpts from the black press have appeared in various places, um, and, and, and there are some canonical texts, for instance, from the um, Indianapolis Freeman uh, newspaper and the Cleveland Gazette uh, that have appeared in other works of scholarship. But, uh, but again, now that these have been digitized, I was able to find some other uh, complementary sources that fleshed out this uh, intellectual picture. So on the one hand, uh, black commentators writing for the press which I think it's important to note that this is a, a particular intellectual class, a particular social class of middle and, and upper class uh, individuals. They really appreciated Dvorak's commentary because one of the essential aspects of his commentary was that black music was definitively American music. And this of course, on the larger political level is the question underpinning Jim Crow politics, the exclusion of black people from full participation in civic life, despite provisions in the constitution saying that they should have full participation. So the notion that Dvorak took that down to the musical level and said, yes, black music is American music was something that was widely welcomed among black intellectuals to the point where many of them said, you know, we've been saying this all along. It's about time we had this ally from overseas, you know, this very famous person from overseas adopting this point of view because we've clearly thought of ourselves as American this whole time, you know, where's everybody else? Now, of course, they also uh, sharply critique the racist anti-Black response to Dvorak that came from other fields. And they, they name drop a lot of famous composers like John Knowles Payne and George Whitefield Chadwick, whose responses to Dvorak were uh, rather pointedly anti-Black, particularly Paines. And so they they kind of uh, experience a little bit of, of schadenfreude, like, you know, Paine had written a couple of symphonies already, and they say, oh, well, it's too bad that you didn't think of this first, because now Dvorak is the one saying this, and, and now we've caught you in your racist vitriol. So um, they, they were really um, vindicated and validated by Dvorak's comments. Now, once the symphony comes around, again, because of these sort of questionable relationships to actual black music, there's more of an ambivalent response among 
black commentators. And so the, the positivity toward Dvorak uh, after the, the uh, premiere tends to focus on his statements rather than the music. And uh, I found this really great, great uh, article by one of Dvorak's students, Will Marion Cook, uh, a few years after Dvorak left, where he is, he is kind of cataloging the history of Black participation in classical music in the U.S. And near the end of it, he says, he talks about Dvorak's arrival, and he says that as much as Dvorak understood uh, the music of African Americans, as much as he loved it, as much as he tried to incorporate the spirit of it into his music, he himself was incapable of doing so because he didn't fully understand the cultural resonance of this music for Black people. And so this is, in essence, what we now call cultural appropriation. I mean, Cook is is working out these dynamics of, like, where does a white European musician's capacity to express uh, something that has arisen out of a different culture, where does that begin and end? And Cook firmly came down on that the, the notion that Dvorak, not that he took one step too far, just that Dvorak ran into a brick wall because that, that wall of misunderstanding and lack of understanding prevented him from crossing it. And so he wasn't saying that Dvorak was, you know, did anything wrong. It wasn't like we sort of hear today in, in, in social media discourse about, you know, litigating whether or not cultural appropriation happened. I think Cook makes the case, like the case, like, yes, it did. And I don't think anyone could make the case that it didn't happen. I mean, Dvorak's own process is about, you know, trying to imbibe the spirit of these other musics. And, you know, that's, that's essentially appropriation. Uh, but what I think is important to note is that Cook uh, appreciated Dvorak's appreciation, but said, you know, there are just some lines that, that a white person or a European person just can't, they can't cross because of their lack of understanding. And so there, there's a thread of black musical criticism that I follow after Cook, um, particularly in the writings of Nora Holt, where, um, uh, thanks to Lucy Kaplan, the scholar Lucy Kaplan uh, sent me some of these magazines and, and sort of sent me down this path of looking at some of her comments where she uh, evaluates white composers who engaged with black musical materials and sort of, um, not in a quantitative way, but in a more qualitative way, describes the level of appropriation that these white composers took. And so she, she like Cook, was a bit more positive to ambivalent about Dvorak. But then there are composers like John Powell and Henry Gilbert, who she had a very strong distaste for. Um, but then there's another guy living in Chicago named Torvald Ulterstrom, whose music she really liked. Um, and, and what's interesting, and I don't get into this in the book much because it, it would have just taken up too much space, but the, the pieces that she didn't like are the pieces that the white critics really liked and said are these great examples of a Dvorakian style. Um, and so th- there's a complete 180 degree difference between who the white critics think were doing this thing, this Dvorak thing well, and who Nora Holt and other black critics thought were doing the Dvorak thing well. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's, it, it, there's, there's a truly ambivalent response, ambivalent in the, the most, um, dictionary definition of the term that it's kind of t- twofold, um, two, two sides of a coin in, uh, black intellectuals response to Dvorak. So as we come to the end of this interview, maybe uh, a good last question would be, um, what do you think the legacy of this piece is? Yeah, that, it's a really tough question. Um, this this piece is performed more than practically every other piece of music that's ever been written. Uh, I did a statistical study using League of American Orchestra t- t- statistics a few years ago, and year after year after year, it was in the top 10 most performed pieces. And those stats don't even include youth orchestras. And I know that the first time uh, I heard a live performance of this was one summer at Interlaken. And it's a piece that's easy enough for youth orchestras to do. And so I think the fact that it's 
that younger people get exposed to it early in their careers as players, and then that it continues to kind of permeate the repertoire, shows that it's had just a profound influence on uh, worldwide engagement with classical music, period. That it's become a symbolic, uh, like an emblem of what classical music is. Um, that's, that's good and bad, because um, as you mentioned at the very beginning, the, the, the myths surrounding this piece really paper over the fraught political circumstances in which it arose and the fraught political symbolism that it contains. And that's something that I've really tried to bring to the fore in the book. One of my arguments is that it, it I say that it crystallizes race relations in the United States at the time, that it's, it's a piece of evidence that gives us a crystallized view of what that racial tension was. And so for us to forget that uh, as a culture and to sort of see this piece floating out there as one among many pieces, um, I think is, is, has negative consequences for us, that it's, it's not exactly erasing history, it's just sort of a willful forgetting of what race in America is. Um, at the same time, the piece has had a really interesting history within black classical music making in, in black classical music spaces. So for instance, I've written in the New York times recently that, uh, it became a staple in the repertoires of all of the great, uh, 20th century black conductors like Everett Lee and Dean Dixon, um, and several others, some of whom are still alive, uh, Jerry Lynn Johnson. I mean, uh, I say still alive as if she's old. Yeah, she's not old at all. But I mean, uh, this is it's been part of a continuous performing tradition uh, among black conductors. Um, there were several uh, interracial orchestras that emerged in the middle of the 20th century. This piece became a part of their repertoire. And then kind of surprisingly, and this is something I get into at the very end of the book, this piece has also become one of the most performed pieces on international tours. Uh, I think because of, again, this kind of papered over sense that it was some kind of symbol of international fellowship, that it's, it seems like it's useful as a piece of cultural diplomacy. And this is not just American orchestras. I mean, I, I've, I've done the research on this and, and like the Philadelphia Orchestra brought it to China in the 1970s, all the way to the New York Philharmonic, bringing it to North Korea in the uh, mid 2000s. But other orchestras outside the United States also do this too. So um, I found examples of the Hong Kong Philharmonic bringing it on uh, international goodwill tours to Vienna. Um, there was a, a Chinese orchestra that brought it to Tehran uh, at the signing of the Iran nuclear deal just a few years ago under Obama. And so this piece has taken on just this whole other cluster of meanings um, in a new globalized society that we're in now. And, you know, I, I, as a historian, I'm a little bit blasé about it. Like, you know, history is going to go like history is going to go. People do what they're going to do. Um, and so I don't want to be sort of too critical of these things, but I do really worry about the fact that very early in its history, there were, concerted, strong attempts to remove its connections to Black Americans, and that over the next 50, 60 years, Black Americans worked very strongly to reclaim those connections. And so for it to once again kind of lose that sense, if it's just sort of a generically folksy piece, um, I think that it's we've just begun that cycle over again. And so I hope that this book and the historicization that this book brings will enable performance organizations to rethink how they program the piece in the future. It's clearly not going anywhere because it's so popular. But um, as I mentioned in the Times piece, why not program it alongside living composers of African-American or indigenous backgrounds. Um, and some are, are doing it. They've already had that idea. And, and I think it's a really good one because uh, the American story is a complicated, multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic story. 
And if we want the story of classical, American classical music to reflect that, then organizations need to make an intentional effort to do it. And I hope that this book kind of helps them uh, with some of the historical dimensions of that. Well, I think going off of what you said, the thing that makes me a little uncomfortable with, you know, this idea that it's become this, both this piece that we bring, you know, American orchestras bring to, to other places in the world, and then they come back and bring it back to us, gives this idea that this is like, this is a piece that's all about, um, you know, the beauty of a colorblind society or, you know, race relations. We all get along so well. This is this great, you know, uh, melting pot world. Um, but when you, but actually, when it was was written, it was absolutely deeply implicated in exactly the opposite. You know that it was. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah it, 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 yes, it's it's the complete opposite right. of a harmonious melting pot metaphor. Um, and and I I come down pretty hard on Dvorak because he he never really understood that aspect of it. And I think really put his foot in his mouth a few times when pressed on the issue. And this is why I think Cook was not quite as friendly as he might have been, because it's, it, Dvorak was here. He had a certain level of appreciation for African-American people, African-American music, um, educating African-Americans, which he saw he clearly saw as a significant uh, civil rights issue, if you want to put that phrase on it, in the post-Reconstruction era, uh, which certainly other progressive educational leaders did. But on the level of the role that race was playing in American society at the time, I kind of think that he remained willfully ignorant to that. I mean, how how can you come to the United States in the mid 1890s and like not grasp it? <laughs> he, there's one there's one interview where he says that he thinks he's like, wow, musical politics is far more controversial than racial politics. And I'm thinking, okay, that's uh, that's only a European would ever have that thought in the 1890s. Well, this has been, you know, such an interesting conversation in the book itself is so rich and really delves into this, this topic. So, uh, you know, with such specificity and it's such a nice counterpart to orchestrating the nation that to me, it sort of feels like the two of them together kind of create this hole where you can get the specific example of Dvorak and, you know, off of these, this large, um, much more sprawling um, story that you tell in orchestrating the nation. At this point, you know, where do you go from here? What is, what's your next project? Well, um, I have some good news to share for listeners, which is that um, Dr. Samantha Ege, uh, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oxford in England, and I are co-authoring a biography of Florence Price, composer. And it's in the final stages of review at Oxford University Press for their Master Musician series, which is one of the uh, more trade line uh, series. And Price will be the, um, not the first American, but the first uh, American composer of color in that series. Um, and so we're, we're hoping to blow that series wide open with a uh, different kind of coverage. And so we're really excited about um, building on the work of, of the late Ray Linda Brown, whose, whose Price biography uh, just came out at University of Illinois Press. Uh, the Master Musician series does a lot more digging into the scores. Um, and so each chapter focuses on some significant pieces. And so we, we hope that this will be uh, really the first uh, go-to source for um, analytical thoughts about a lot of Price's music that has recently come to light. Um, as well as pieces that, that folks have known for a long time, like the piano sonata, for instance. And so, um, yeah, doing a, a, a life and works biography of Florence Price uh, as, as a co-author is really where we're headed next. And fingers crossed that the Board of Delegates comes back with uh, approval for it. But we're in those last stages. So I don't want to say that we're, we're definitely doing it. But I mean, that, that ship has sailed as far as our work has gone. I mean, we, we, we're talking almost every day about how we're going to tackle this. And so, um, you know, we're really excited about seeing where that goes. And of course, uh, Florence Price appears at the end of orchestrating the nation very briefly. And then I was able to expand uh, my coverage of Price in 
this Dvorak book uh, to show how she fits into that story. And so I think it, it's really a logical next step to build it out and uh, to build her out into a book length uh, project, particularly with someone. Um, Dr. Aga's dissertation is on price. It's about her time in Chicago and she's a pianist, which I am not. And so we're really kind of bringing both of our backgrounds together to see if we can pull, pull the best out of each of us into a, a product that will be sort of better than the sum of its parts or, you know, greater than the sum of its parts. So we're, we're really excited about that project. Well, that is amazing news. I love her work and she is a gorgeous pianist, but her scholarship is impeccable too. So to put you two together, that's, that's an amazing uh, partnership. I really look forward to, to seeing that when it comes out. That's really exciting yeah. and, and yeah. well needed. No. I mean, I love that Ray Linda Brown biography, but it, it's quite, it, it was written a long time ago. It just took a long time for that book to get out. So there's a lot of things in it that, um, you know, it will really that to pair that with something that has with scholarship that has more access to the black press and, you know, more access to uh, sorts of um, resources that Ray Ledger Brown just didn't have when she did the, the bulk of the research for that book. I think it's really uh, well needed to have kind of a, a companion book to, to that um, Brown um, biography, which I did an interview um, about that book as well when it came out. So it's, it's, Exciting. So people are listening to this and want to learn more about Dr. Shadle's book, about Doug's book, Orchestrating the Nation, or Raylinda Brown's biography. You can go back and do books and, and music and, and find those inter, um, interviews as well. So, well, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Um, um, you know, thank you for being available to do this interview. It's great to talk to you. Sure, yeah. yeah, thanks a lot. This is a lot of fun. And, and I'm really honored to be the, your, your first second time author and and hopefully when when the next one comes out samantha and i can be on together and we'll we'll do this again absolutely i would definitely want that to happen thank you so much well all right bye-bye thank you okay bye-bye